0: We are in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. It's been a while since I've been here. I was on vacation, so I do want to say thank you because you do provide for for me and mine to do that. I I got a chance to go to, don't judge me, Coronado for two weeks. Um, (laughs) And uh, had an absolute blast. Went to a Tom Petty concert. That was awesome. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Ate way too much, and uh, I think I wore one pair of shorts for two weeks. Isn't that great? <laughs> Got a lot of sun, and and uh, it, it was ridiculously great. And I'm I'm thankful. I, I did learn this though, and I I have to confess it. I realized every time I go on vacation, I come back with less of my brain. So if this thing is too simple for you, it's it's vacation's fault. Um, anyway, we're gonna try. And uh, great time to come back because Romans 12:11 is one verse, three phrases. You don't need a preacher for. Um, Sad to say, you could teach this to yourself. It's that clear to us. So um, there are some texts in our Roman study where we needed to spend a lot of time and do a lot of work and pull it apart and look at it from different angles. This is not one of those passages. Uh, This is one that is clear, and so we're going to pray for uh, some uh, supernatural intervention. Typically, when you run into passages, you assume you know, you skip it mentally emotionally and reaction you just skip it because i've got this i I know what that means and so i want to pray that the holy spirit just stops us in our tracks today um, and helps us see our life in light of this verse but let's read it together and then we'll we'll pray do not be slothful in zeal be fervent in spirit serve the lord pretty simple right that's why we got to pray let's pray together God, I thank you so much for Jesus, everything that we have sung, that he frees us from sin, he frees us from the tyranny of living a life of sin. Um, And God, we do ask that you'd speak to us today. For those of us who uh, have uh, issues with hearing, I pray that your spirit would uh, take them over. I pray, God, that you would convict us of ways and places where we don't line up with your word. I, I pray, God, that you would be the point of this sermon. And we'd make much of you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I could just jump into this, but I'm not going to because uh, I think we need context. Uh, chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 could be some of the most misused passages in Scripture because some people just jump into this passage of pragmatic, practical lists of do's and don'ts and run ragged on themselves and other people's without in, in view of the first 11 chapters. So we're going to just take a couple minutes and put it in context so that we don't do the same thing. It is so important because by nature, every person in this room is a legalist. You'd prefer a list. In fact, if I came today prepared with a list of things, here it is. I've boiled the essence of Christian living down to 10 things you always want to do. You guys would be happy. It'd go on your refrigerator. You'd make bracelets out of it. It'd be a wonderful day, but it would make us a a, a worse place to go to church. He would just make it brutal. Um, Because we ultimately look into to feel good about ourselves. And the way we typically do this in our religion is to measure our life based on others or based on a set of rules or standards and say, God's got to be pleased with me now. And that isn't what we studied in the first 11 chapters of, of Romans. If you've been around, it was I think 18, 19 months ago I think we started this study. And you've heard us say in triplicate, Uh, This faith that we have is nothing to do with lists. It has nothing to do with morality or or being good or religion or success or achievement in it. Chapters 1 through 11 are absolutely critical to understand 12 through through 16. Do you understand? These first uh, 11 chapters are about the wonderful gospel that we confess and we believe. This story that starts out with, our, uh, good look at our sin, our inability. In fact, the, the writer says our deadness to God. And not even a passive deadness. We're described at enmity. We're at war with God in our deadness. We are resisting him. We're not even neutral. We're so messed up. But it describes us as broken and dead, and yet God comes on a rescue mission for sinners, and he sets us free by faith in Christ, free from Lots of things, but predominantly free from trying to fix our problem on our own. Which is religion? Which is lists? Which is morality? Which is all all those things? Let me remind you where we've been. I want you to turn to the left. Go back to Romans chapter 3 for a second. This is how Paul put it. After looking at the problem so clearly in the beginning of 3, here's where he intersects that thought with what God has done for us and in spite of us. Look, Look at this in verse 21 through 24. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, apart from rules and regulations. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a what? Gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words these wonderful words I read in these few verses, redemption and grace and righteousness and forgiveness are given by God to us as a gift, not as payment. And religion, all the world is thinking that effort means God owes, that God is in the business of paying back good people for their goodness. And the gospel, these first 11 chapters tell us that's not true. It's, it can't even be true. It's incapable of being true because of how sick and twisted our hearts are. We are now free. We, it is a free gift from God to us, to people who see themselves as God and the scriptures see us. And by faith in Christ, um, we are saved. And it's in light of that amazing grace story that Paul writes verse 1 of chapter 12. Look, look at verse 1 again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Right there, that little phrase, in view of the mercies of God, if we ever forget that, everything we're about to see in chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 will turn into religion. It will turn into a list and a ladder to try to fix our problem or feel better about ourselves, and so we can't say anything pragmatic. Until we tell ourselves the gospel, that you are saved from you, saved from performance, and saved from morality. You're saved into good works because God lives in us. Understood? Absolutely essential that we get that. Everything Paul is about to say from chapter 11 on is his instructions to an already free people. You're already free. A free church and what he tells us is what we get to do, not what we have to do. That's what free people do. I enjoy him. Look what I get to do in serving him. And he tells us the story of what God is doing in us, not what we can do to appease him. And, and, and we've got to get this because if you don't get this, what we're about to read, you're going to see is rungs on a ladder, not a relationship with a person. And it all falls apart. Okay? So with that in mind, in view of his mercies, in view of this wonderful gospel story that sinners can be saved by faith in Christ, we see um, a very, very simple, simple passage. And in essence, I, I, I know Tyler said this in a, li- a little bit when he taught a couple weeks ago, but if you were to boil down these four chapters, you could just say that it's the details of a Matthew 22 passage of Christ saying, here's, here's the answer to the question, what's the greatest commandment? Remember when the Pharisee asked him, what, what am I supposed to do? And he boiled everything, everything down to one particular instruction, love God with everything you've got, heart, soul, mind, and strength, every fiber of your being, and prove it by extending your love to your neighbor. That's it. So all the rest of this is just the details. All it is is just a definition of what it is to love God in a radical way and loving people as an expression. You get it? So that's the context. That's where it all fits together. So let's read verse 11 again and, and, and see what Paul says specifically of what it looks like to love. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. I've got two words for you. You ready? Intensity, focus. That's what Paul's dealing with in this this passage. And he does it with with two commands uh, to start with, one a negative and, and one a positive command, okay? Do not be slothful, but be fervent in spirit. This last week, I went online and I took uh, a personality test. In fact, I took two personality tests. I think I failed them both, if that's possible. Um, And here's what I mean. One was a sliding scale, you got to pick an ish uh, on a question, and one was a yes or no. And both of them came back, and I went, that's not me. It picked me as average, uh, like indifferent. I'm not that guy. Um, so I thought, well, that, that doesn't work for me. And, and I, I, I just use that as a way to say some of you would read verse 11 like I read that personality test. And you would look at this verse and go, that's just not me. I, I, I don't work hard, and I don't have zeal for anything. I'm pretty neutral. I'm, I'm right down the middle. I don't swing too far. I'm, I'm safe. And you would look at this command and go, that's got to apply to those people who are really lit up somewhere. Where do they put them in a church? Do they, do they go over there? We'll, we'll preach that over there. Well, this is not that kind of, of sermon. Here's what Paul is doing. He is not describing a type of Christian. He's describing what all Christians need to be. So I'm just going to promise you some offense today. What Paul will say will make some of you feel like, well, that's, that's, that's too close. That's just not my game. That, that isn't fair because it puts me in a, a position of weakness. Either way, because he says several things here, I just want you to be ready to receive this because Paul is talking about faith, faith in Christ, what the gospel does in view of the mercies of God, what it does to all believers, okay? So for some of us, you're gonna feel like I'm okay and, and uh, I guess that's possible. And to a lot of us, we're gonna go, I-, I could do more in view of God's mercy. So that's the way we wanna read it. There is 13 words in this sentence, three phrases, so I'm going to make three points and say them a different way than Paul said it. First thing that Paul said is do not be slothful. I'll give you another way to think of this. In other words, God's, uh, love for God is not lazy. Love for God is not lazy. The word slothful is, is the idea of slow or lagging behind. Um, it's, it's lazy. That's exactly what it means. Someone who just is not doing anything. Uh, Zeal, the word zeal there, do not be lazy in zeal. Zeal is earnestness, it's diligence, it's intensity. In other words, this is for you pragmatic types who like to work. The kind of people who um, just get stuff done. This is is the redneck version of Christianity, get her done. That's, That's exactly what he's suggesting here, okay? Do something. Don't lag behind in your intensities pick stuff up and work. Okay? Now, in other words, I'll say it this way, just to make it really crystal. Don't sit around feeling your way through things. Get busy. Okay? Some people contemplate too much and do very, very little. And Paul's suggestion here, not being lazy in intensity, is work. Get busy. Okay? Okay? It's, it's his idea of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, at the end of this chapter, his instruction is be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. I love Paul. He always throws out that kind of concept of I, I buffet my body and I make it my slave. He's always talking about the effort he puts towards the kingdom of God in view of the mercies of God. And so some of us in here look at that and go, preach it, brother Paul. That's just right down my alley. I love that. You're a type A aggressive. You guys should be saying amen to this stuff because this is for us, right? You're glad this is in here. Um, In fact, you can't understand why people don't work. And let's, let's just limit the discussion to service to the king. How is it possible that a church would ever have to make a request for people to serve? How is that possible in view of the mercies of God? There should be a line of people waiting to serve. There might be. I have no idea what I'm saying. But 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 just just say, why would the church ever have to say, hey, we have a need? In view of the mercies of God, the church should be lining up to work. To work. So (laughs) some of you heard it this way. Yeah, that's right. Get off your tail. Do something. Because 10% do 90% of the work. Somebody said that once. I had a this is 30 years ago. I worked in a laborers' union in Chicago. And I had a foreman. If you, were, if you were walking somewhere, anywhere on the job site without carrying something, he'd yell at you. What are you just walking for? You shouldn't just be walking. Carry something. Make it a profitable journey. Pick something up and carry it. I guess in essence, that's what Paul is saying. Get something done. And, and, and some of us, to be fair, instinctively see life this way. Intense, driven, type A. Accomplishers, you set agendas. You wake up in the morning early. You go to bed at night. You get your to-do list done. You you've got it wired, and, and you just all you got to say to this is Amen, Amen, times ten. Love it. Bring it some more. And so, you would line up with what Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said in uh, Ecclesiastes nine: Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And that's how you wake up every morning to wring every drop out of life to work. Really, really hard. Now, some of you love that, and I, I get it. But but we've got a flip side to that coin a little bit. For those pragmatic types, just get it done types, there is this second aspect that Paul says. He says, "Be fervent." This is the positive command: be fervent in spirit. I, I've kind of written it this way: love for God is passionate. Not only is it not lazy; it's passionate fervent just means to be stirred up emotionally now here's where it starts to rub with the pragmatic doer cuz doers don't necessarily feel their way through things they just see the list and get it done this this person this command of Paul to the church is to be stirred up enthusiastic the phrase actually means to boil over to boil over the edges it means to feel deeply it's passionate In fact, passionate people have a tendency not to see the task done. They just feel it really strongly. And Paul says, be that too. Do both. The word spirit there, some have debated whether it's referring to the God spirit or our spirit. I I, I think that's too much minutia. I think it's both. I think the, the essence of what Paul is saying here is be stirred up emotionally, boil over, be passionate for God and the things of God. That's exactly his point. In other words, our spirit is energized by the By the Holy Spirit. Let me describe this person for a second. This person um, doesn't need to be guilted into doing anything. You don't have to twist this guy's arm or this girl's arm to get busy. Because they get busy in the things they care about. And what they care about, they feel deeply. Do you understand? In fact, they're the people that you see when you walk around and they've got this ridiculous smile on their face. And they actually enjoy their service. In fact, if you took it away from them, they'd feel a loss. For service for them is an inexpressible joy. It's not a duty. It's a pleasure. It's a, it's a delight. You see the difference? There are things to do, and you just got to muster through it. And then there are people who do what they love, and their behavior is radically different. And that's what Paul is saying, okay? In view of the mercies of God, work really, really hard and love what you work in. Love it. Um... Piper has a wonderful way to describe, um, illustrate the difference between duty and delight. And the way he illustrates is is, um, using his wife um, and bringing flowers home at the end of the day as an illustration. He says, what if I came home to my wife with a bouquet of roses and knocked on the door and she opened the door and said, well, what's the flowers for? And his response was, it's my duty. (laughs) Now, flowers good, gentlemen? Yeah, flowers are good, good, good thought and everything else, but it doesn't quite feel right to say it's my duty. Th- this is how he goes on to explain why that can be a, a not-complete thought. Is duty a bad thing? No, it's not, a, it's not a bad thing, but it can only take you so far. If you want romance, duty's not going to get it. The right answer to my wife's question goes like this. I couldn't help myself... My happiness got out of hand. <laughs> guys are writing this down. Remember <laughs> to say. <laughs> the amazing thing about this answer is that it does two things that many people think won't fit together. It expresses my happiness and it makes her feel honored. A lot of people say that if I do something because it makes me happy, it can't honor the other person. But it can. And Why? Because delighting in someone is a very high compliment. If you enjoy someone, two amazing things happen. You get the joy and they get the glory. And this is this cute little phrase he has. Pleasure is the measure of your treasure. Make sense? When you enjoy someone, you are giving them the highest form of compliment that you can give them. I just love you. That's why I'm doing this. You can't wipe the smile off my face. My joy is too great, and I'm busy working. You get, make sense? So if you put the two halves of this first verse, or this verse 11 together, this is what Paul is instructing for every Christian. Ready? Do lots and lots and lots and lots of work, Christian, with all of your heart, because you love to do it. Pretty simple, right? I told you you could could preach this one yourself. One writer put it this way, be as pragmatic as a businessman and as passionate as a poet, if that helps you. And by the way, Paul doesn't leave room. There's no gaps in his his commands to the church um, for excuses. So we don't have the room to say, I'm a worker. I'm pragmatic. I'm not a feeler. What you need to do is just pray that God would make you feel more, enjoy more, pleasure more in him and his service. If you're one of those people who feel your way through things, but you don't necessarily pick things up because you're waiting to feel it, to do it, then you need to pray that God would give you the effort in it so that you can do both. What Paul says the church should do in view of his mercy. Make sense? Okay. Ask God to make you work harder. Jonathan Edwards, uh, some would say, is the, the brightest mind America ever produced. Great theologian, great writer, great preacher. When he was 19 years old, wrote 70 resolutions for his life. I couldn't spell resolution at 19. He wrote 70 resolutions for his life. And every year after he wrote them, 35 years more he lived, every week he read all 70 resolutions so that his life could be lined up with these truths. Number six on the list is the essence of what we're talking about. To live with all my might while I live. I'm not going to bed at night wondering if I worked hard or I loved much. I'm not doing that. It's getting everything that I have. And, And by the way, I have to put some cautions and some warnings on you. Sometimes people hear with a filter, okay? And so you hear this idea of work hard for the king and be passionate for the king, and you... You continue to find yourself the exception to the rule. And I want to give you the warnings that Jesus gives to an indifferent, apathetic people. When he's writing to the church of Laodicea in Revelations 3, he has some fairly hard things to say. And he says this. And this was a church known, known for being in the middle. Okay, not too hot, not too cold, just right there. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's Jesus' comment to a moderate church. To a church who is uh, living their life based on balance. Jesus said in Luke uh, chapter 10, here's how you love me. Heart, soul, mind, strength. And if there was another word, that would extend and enhance the definition of everything. He would have put it in there. Jesus simply said, there is one way to love me. One way. Everything you got. Remember? God said um, to the prophet Jeremiah, this wonderful promise, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Half Hearted followers wonder where God is. They don't feel his presence. They don't sense his joy. They don't see his power in their life because they're trying to manage the middle. The gospel doesn't make average people. It doesn't bring moderation in us. It brings extreme things like hard work and love. Do you understand? That's what Paul says. It changes us from an indifferent, lazy group of people. Focused on the king and his kingdom. Pretty simple. We're not talking about a personality strength here. This this passage of scripture isn't for those who instinctively work hard or feel deeply. This is God's heart for all believers. In other words, intensity matters. Passion matters. Passion in our worship matters. Expression, it matters. God says that. Work matters, serving matters, stepping up matters, faithfulness, finishing strong matters. Our, our generation has walked away from what it means to finish. We have no concept of what it means to finish. The idea of being young and growing old, doing one thing and serving the king, having a, making a difference in lives, I just want to keep moving, just keep moving. The next thing that does something for me, we are anemic because people don't know how to finish. And that's all Paul is saying. If you love him, in view of his great goodness and mercy to you, if you love him with everything you got, you're going to work hard and you're going to care deeply. Does it make sense? With everything that you've got. And he instructs again in Galatians 6, don't grow weary in doing good. People aren't going to necessarily always love the work you do or notice it. And people can be mean sometimes and make judgments of your life. I got a call this week that made me feel like, I was being judged. That happens, it happens a lot, but they can't derail this. Don't grow weary in doing good in view of what? Not the person or their comments or the struggle or the fight, in view of his mercies. These things happen in my life. So, so far we've said love for God isn't lazy, and love for God is passionate. Here's the third thing um, he says. Serve the Lord, and I've defined it this way. Love for God serves. Pretty simple. Love for God serves. These uh, three small words are so important. I don't know how, how to describe their importance. They're absolutely huge. Th- these three words are what make this a Christian message. If it wasn't for serve the Lord, and all I said to you was work hard and love a lot, we would be moralists, we'd be religious folks. And maybe put it in the most negative way I could possibly be, we'd be pagan, humanistic, try-harder, burdened people is what we would be. It's every other religion in the world trying to do things to get where they think they want to go. But, but this phrase, this is what it makes it distinctively Christ-centered. It's our focus of our work and our passions. It is the motive behind everything. Without this phrase, you could just blow me off. In fact, I would tell you without this phrase, you should blow me off because who am I to tell you to work harder? And who am I to tell you to care more? As soon as I put there, you see that Paul puts there because of Jesus. Well, it all makes sense. It all makes sense we don't serve ourselves. We don't serve our plans. We don't have a kingdom. We serve the king, and his name is Jesus. Amen? And he, he's changed everything. We are saved from from our sin and God's judgment. We have eternal life. We cannot die. There is life in joy forevermore. There is no judgment for those who are in Christ. There is nothing that can separate us from Christ. God takes all the messes of our life and works them together for our good and his glory. There is an eternal weight of glory waiting for those who suffer in Christ. It can't get better than that. He's the focus and the intention of every good work, right? So he's the outcome. And so the way we need to think about it, church, is this. Our joy in serving Christ expresses itself with this attitude. We get, we get to serve Jesus. Think about that. Re- remember when you were outside and didn't know you were outside looking in? Do you remember when you were trying to live your life apart from any kind of truth whatsoever and all you did was hurt yourself and other people? Do you, do you remember all the scars in your life because of sin? And, and the creator of the universe invites you close, calls you sons and daughters, and frees you to serve him. We get to serve the creating God of the universe. Thank you. That's true. One person believes that. So, he's our joy. Paul gives us in his writings several other mistakes that people make in their service. So I just want to throw them out there as contrast compared to the wonderful joy of following Christ and serving Christ with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you look at your life and see where you might be be serving the wrong thing. Uh, Paul in uh, Romans chapter 16 talks about people who make the mistake of serving their appetites instead of their king. In fact, he says this in verses 17 and 18 of that chapter. We'll get to this in a couple of months. Brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but serve their own appetites. My, my uh, thought is that there are many of us who have a tendency to serve our own appetites. So let me define it for you a little bit. It's when we live or when we say that something is more pleasing than Jesus. Something else. In fact, I I, I got the instructions of the scriptures, but but I have this need that God didn't provide. Or I have this want or this desire or this lust that God didn't provide for. And so ultimately, Christ alone isn't ultimately pleasing because I have to add. And so... It's saying that other things satisfy. Whenever we entertain impure thoughts about anyone or anything, we're saying at that moment, at that moment, I'm serving my appetites. Those matter to me. Whenever we are indulging all the things that we want, we're serving our appetites. When we live beyond our means and credit cards are loading up, we are... Serving our appetites. When we hoard and not give generously, we are serving our appetites. And I suppose you probably could continue to add to that list. You're not serving the Lord, you're serving your appetites. We're saying that those things at that moment, at that time, are more compelling than Christ. There's another way in which Paul says that people get confused and serve the wrong thing. He says, people serve other people. Now, I know that sounds weird, so let me define it before you go away and say I said something wrong, okay? Are we to serve others? Yes, we are. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fear of man. I'm talking about the difference between living for the approval of other people versus the hands and feet of Jesus, which is the way Christians serve, hands and feet of Christ. I just want to be his agent in this world versus I got to matter, I got to have worth, people got to see me, and I feel better about myself, that kind of people-pleasing. And there's a whole bunch of crippled people, people who are Christians walking around as people-pleasers. Paul said this in Ephesians chapter 6, serve, but not the way of eye service as people-pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. You know any people-pleasers? Are you one? I'm going to use a word to describe where you're at. Prison. To be trapped behind man's approval is the ultimate prison. To wake up every day wondering if you're liked. Wondering if people are going to stick with you based on what you do, your performance. To be accepted, want people to accept you, and your happiness comes and goes based on the approval of man. And by the way, this, cl- this is classic, and it happens to every people pleaser I know. They all burn out. They can't, they can't manage. And there is no joy. There's no happiness in people pleasers. And so there's a way we can serve the wrong thing when we're busy about having others give us approval. But here's what Jesus did for the church. He gave us liberty and freedom. And you know what the gospel ultimately says is that God knows your entire story, right? Everything, everything you have done, even the secret stuff, the motives and the intentions, all, all, all the stuff you're certain is buried somewhere. He knows that. He knows right now the entire, the entire essence of everything in your life and he knows what the future holds for your life. He knows all the blunders and watches this wonderful story of the gospel. He not only knows everything, but he fully accepts you in Christ. He's not going to wake up on the wrong side of the bed tomorrow and go, okay, I never saw that coming. I, I didn't say that. And you don't have to wake up wondering if this eternal God is now frustrated with your game because in Christ, he sees it no more. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west so far, he's removed your transgressions from us, he will remember it no more. Are you kidding me? Come on, church, smile. He does not judge you on performance. He does not see your behavior as you do. You are a free, liberated people because of Christ. Who would want to live for the approval of man when you get that from God? Right? Right? There's one other way in which people serve the wrong thing, and Paul says that they have a tendency to serve the law. We already saw this in Romans 7, verse 6, where Paul said that we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code. Let me just put this in our vernacular, okay? There are people, Christians, who were still convinced in the illusion of self-righteousness, I actually feel better today because of what I've done. Like, you're not following any specific Old Testament commands, maybe. You, you've got your own list of things that God finds really, really attractive, and so you live based on those, and your emotions go up and down based on that list. And so you're a better self-righteous person than you are a grace person. In fact, you don't even need the gospel of freedom because you've made your own law. And that's why Paul says, this, this, you've been set free from that law, that law of of enslavement, and you get to serve in the new way, the new way of Christ. And so Jesus came, and we know this, and we've studied this, Jesus came to fulfill all of the law's requirements. Everything that the law needed from us, Jesus did for us. Do you understand? And it's not a burden to us anymore. And a better way to think of this is that this new law that Paul talks about in Romans 7 isn't a law at all, it's a person. The new way is Jesus. Jesus. Trusting in Jesus and his sacrifice. Trusting in Jesus and his righteousness. Two ways, two imputations, right? My sin to Jesus on the cross, fully paid for and fully punished. His righteousness to me, fully holy as, as God's own son is holy. God doesn't see any difference. It's not a law. It's a, it's, a, it's a relationship. It's the person of Jesus Christ that empowers and energizes our work and our passions, right? And by the way, and here's the kicker. If you're looking at this small little list that Paul gives, these two little phrases, work really hard and give it everything you got as far as passion, you go, well, that's a, that's a tall order. Well, God provides the effort for that too. Remember what Paul says in Colossians 1. Paul says, I toil and struggle with all the energy that he provides. Where's the gas come to do this? It comes from Christ. First Peter, Peter says, whoever serves is the one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Everything we need for life and godliness, God has made a way for. Okay? So, let me finish with this. Christians aren't lazy. They work hard. Let that linger. There's that group that want to say amen and that group that want to say, I didn't hear that. Okay? Christians work hard. And, and Christians boil over. And they feel Deeply. And they're not down the middle. They're extreme in their passions. And they serve their Savior with joy. Let your face know that you're saved, okay? And the reason why is because of the love that God has poured out in our hearts. That's why this happens. So can I leave you with two things to consider today before we pray? I want you to make a decision today to stop hiding behind your personality. You have to consciously make this decision. I am not going to use me as a reason not to obey this. I have heard too many people in the church say, that's not me. That's describing a type. It's not describing a type. It's describing a Christian saved by Jesus, okay? So you make this decision today. You're not going to hide behind your personality anymore. You can't say that work is for somebody else, and you can't say that passionate. Living is for somebody else. If these things are simply coming up short in your life, then do what the scripture suggests you should do. Call it what God calls it. Call it sin. Confess it. Repent of it. Remember Romans chapter 12 verse 1. In view of the mercies of God, you go and and live that way. And simply ask God to light the burner, okay? Just ask him. If you've spent your life in the middle, ask him to change it. One other thing before we pray. Just be honest with yourself and admit that whenever we serve anything other than Christ, the pleasures really aren't there, and you know it. If they are, they're so fleeting. They're so small. There's a burrito up at uh, Costa Vida that I eat every week, okay? And I swear before I get there, this is going to be heaven on earth, okay? And they roll up that sweet pork burrito, and I eat it, and I walk out feeling terrible every time. (laughs) Do you get my point? Like everybody, oh, this is awesome, awesome. And finally that awesome starts to dissipate into I'm really sick. (laughs) Just remind yourself any other pleasure but Jesus does that to you. Okay? It dissipates. It can't keep up. And remind yourself that the endurance isn't there in any other pleasure. And remind yourself this most important truth. God's glory is not there. We have the the wonderful, wonderful privilege of following our King with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have the privilege, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that everything we do, everything we do, whether we eat or drink, all can be done to the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray for his help. God, I thank you for uh, Christ and the wonderful gospel that is ours by faith. None of this stuff, even things like this that are so simple to understand, none of these stuff, these things come instinctively to us, God. But in view of your mercies, they can. God, my prayer for the church is that they are working hard for your kingdom and your glory. I pray that they feel deeply and passionately about your gospel. I pray that we serve diligently the King of all kings. That you might get the glory because you're worthy of it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.